Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. And I'm Ann Bonney, redhead impersonator and an expert in change management and leadership that people want to follow. Okay, Ann. What are we going to talk about today? You know, we have a guest today, Dave. We've got Gary Garfield with us. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. And and Dave, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Gary and I met uh, in Nashville. We were at the National Speakers Association Conference uh, Influence, and Gary was um, touting his new book. We're going to give you a chance to talk about that in a minute. Um, but Gary and I just hit it off famously. I, it was just one of those things. We started talking leadership and business, and uh, it was almost like I was listening to me, except for a much more successful me. Uh, Gary is the uh, um, retired uh, president and CEO, correct? Uh, that right? Of, of Bridgestone Tires, a name I think most of us probably have heard of. Um, what, what I thought was most interesting is your positioning of Bridgestone as sort of the the also ran company, which I'd never thought of you as that way. So that was, seemed kind of humble to me. Um, but Gary, before we get into all of that, we, we have a tradition here at uh, Disarming Persuasion. We have one question that we ask every single guest, and it's a simple one. Uh, as I said a minute ago, the name of our podcast is Disarming Persuasion. When you hear that, what does that mean to you? Mm. You know, I've thought about that. Uh, to me, it means someone who's very persuasive in a disarming manner that makes the receiver of the information, the person you're talking to, or the group of people you're talking to, feel very comfortable. They're, dis- they're disarmed, they're relaxed, and you're ready, they're ready to listen and hopefully be persuaded of whatever it is you're advocating. I think you nailed, so my uh, late co-host, Darren Cecil, uh, when he and I started this, that was exactly what we were going for, is to help people understand how to persuade people in, in a way that brings their barriers down, and not in like sort of a Svengali um, uh, uh, manipulative way, but in a way that they're just open to hearing and perhaps moving in the direction that you're suggesting. Um, and, I would Go ahead. I, I would love to know your perspective on how we do that, because that's always what Dave and I are trying to hit on, lots of different ways to be disarming in our discussions and our leadership and our sales. And so what are your thoughts on how we achieve that? Boy, that's that's a big <laughs> one, Ann, <laughs> right? It's almost, it's almost the holy grail, isn't it? How much time um, do we have? <laughs> exactly. Well, the in beauty the of podcasts, we have as much time as we want. <laughs> That's that's right. <laughs> so I, I don't think there's just one single element to it, but uh, some of the things that I have found to work for me in that regard, number one is listen before you seek to be listened to. Uh, I've never met anyone who doesn't want to be listened to. There are people that are shy. There are people that are timid, but down inside, they have their own thoughts, their own ideas, and they want an atmosphere, a culture, if you will, where those can be shared. Um, so it, the more you can listen, and I mean really listen, really engage with the person on their points 
before you try to persuade them, the more open they will be to listen to what you have to say. So that's number one. Number two, I think is um, trust. Trust is a huge, huge element of leadership, in my opinion. And uh, it's one of the most valuable commodities, if you will, that a leader has. Uh, and I talk a lot about that in my book. We can get into that. But um, fundamentally, it's really hard to persuade someone if they don't trust you. I think it's probably impossible. Um, so you have to build up trust. And there are many ways, many elements of building up trust. I think that's another big part of it. One great, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and one, one of the things that Dave and I have talked about is the fact that um, trust doesn't necessarily get built with one great speech. It doesn't get built with gigantic things. It's one of those like every day as we're doing things, we're building that trust up. Absolutely, totally. Everything you do, what you say, your body language when people are talking to you and whatnot, um, your actions. It's all about trust. If, there, if, if a leader operates with a lack of integrity, it's pretty hard to trust that person. Are you going to trust that person to have your back when the time comes? I don't think so. No way. It, exactly. No <laughs> way. So that's a part of it. Uh, there's so much. One of the things I did as the CEO was I started regular town hall meetings all over the company. And, and big company, and there's, there are a lot of town hall meetings. I, I can't tell you how many times the people who were setting up the meeting would ask me, um, do you want us to plant some questions in the audience? No way. <laughs> Absolutely not. For many reasons. Uh, one reason was trust. Because if it ever got out that I planted questions, my trust is gone. My credi credibility as a leader is completely shot. I, I would pretty much need to resign. <laughs> Over, right? So that's one reason. Another reason is these town hall meetings, that one of the purposes was for people in the company to ask questions. It's as much their company as it was mine. I just held a different position. We all had positions, but I had no greater share in the company than they did. And they had the right to ask anything they wanted. And if I could answer it, it was my obligation to answer it. There's some things you can't answer. For example, let's say you're in negotiations over a merger. You can't disclose that because it can actually be a violation of federal law. No, you know, so, right, right. So you, you can't be, uh, if you will, completely truthful. If someone says, are you in, in negotiations to acquire a company? If, unless it's public, you can't say yes, but you also can't lie. Well, it's funny, Gary, it's, you, you remind me with that when I was uh, in the Navy, and we talked about classified information. If somebody asked you about classified information, the only response we were allowed to give, which is the truthful one, is I can neither confirm nor deny. You're not saying yes. You're not saying no. I'm doing neither. Right. And I would say in that kind of situation, if I have something that we can disclose, I will disclose it and you will be the first to, to learn. Yeah. 
I love everything I'm hearing. I have to disagree with you on one thing. And you said leadership doesn't come down to one thing. And I really believe it does. I truly believe, and you said it, and everything you said ties together to this, but leadership comes down to integrity. And everything comes down to your integrity as a leader. And if you maintain it, you will lead successfully. That doesn't mean there aren't little things you can do to improve on that. But that's the baseline of leadership is integrity. And, and I'm looking at what you listed. You said listen, right? I mean, listening, your town hall is listening. Listening engenders trust. It means I care about what you have to say, right? And then you are who you are. That's my definition of integrity. You actually present yourself to be who you really are. There's never any discontinuity between the image you present and your actions. Those are all one and the same. And when you embody that, people start to trust you. I'm curious, what has been some of your biggest challenges? There had to have been some time in your career um, where you were faced with a, a, a test of your integrity. And I maintain that you know great leaders are ones who pass that test, may not even recognize it when it comes up. But I'm wondering if anything comes to mind where you were like a little conflicted and went, if I go this direction, my integrity is at stake, but this is the one people are calling for me to do. Um, I, I think you know, there were a number of instances where someone wanted to operate in a way that I just didn't think that's what, that's not what I was about. It's not what the company was about. And you had to, sh I had to shut it down um, and make my position clear. This isn't quite the example you're looking for, but this was a really sticky situation that I think you'll be interested in. We had operations in a Latin American country, which was a very, very difficult country to operate in. And uh, it, was, it was Venezuela. And um, first there was uh, President Chavez and then his successor. And things just kept, kept getting more and more difficult to run our business there. And we really struggled with how we were going to handle that and held a, lot, held a lot of meetings on it. And one of the issues was we couldn't, we couldn't get dollars. The company down there couldn't get dollars. All they could get was the Venezuelan currency, which was basically worthless. And without getting dollars, they couldn't buy raw materials to keep the factory running. Mm -hmm. And if we shut the factory down, I was advised it's very possible that the um, executives at, in our operation would be arrested. So there was, they didn't do anything illegal, but that's just the way the country was. And we really struggled with what do we do? Do we keep giving them dollars um, to operate and that would keep them safe and secure, the family and the business, but it was losing money because they couldn't pay the dollars back. And there was no chance they would ever get money, currency to pay us back. So it was, it was a real test. And ultimately, uh, we decided what we had to do was just get out of Dodge, so to speak. And we sold the business um, at a very substantial write-off. Um, but we did it in a way that didn't put the people down there, our people down there, at risk of, of upsetting the government. And the government just 
throwing them in jail. And that was a real test as to how we would do things. I think that nails it because you're, you're faced with this dilemma, right? The business calls for just divesting yourself of, of this uh, property of yours because it's, it, it's a business suck and you have an obligation to your shareholders that to, to get rid of it. The moral dilemma is now I have all these people who entrusted themselves to you for safety and security. And if you just close things down, they're going to be thrown to the wolves. And, and I love, I love your solution, right? It, it's, um, coach of ours talks about that sacred third, which is her definition. It's actually her coach's definition is where you have this sort of paradox of either or, and you look for that third solution that actually encompasses both. How do I, Right. Protect my shareholders and protect my people in this particular instance. And I think that's a great example. I'm curious if you have any advice to our listeners who may be faced with their own dilemma, how you were able to come up with that creative solution. No, um, first of all, I think you have to open yourself and your team to new ideas. And sometimes getting the views of people who are removed them from the situation. They can bring fresh ideas to the table. But I think the fundamental point, the really fundamental point is, as a leader, you have to create an atmosphere where people can throw out crazy ideas. And that's how you come up with interesting ideas, potential ideas. If you don't create that atmosphere where people are they, there's no risk in throwing out I, bad ideas. And I would make it clear in a meeting, I want to have the freedom to throw out bad ideas. I want you to, too. Um, and some of those ideas that appear to be bad at first blush, maybe they're pretty good. Um, but that's how you get different ways of doing things, innovative ways of doing things. Yeah, I actually have made it a game with my team before where I've said, all right, we're in this meeting to come up with a bunch of ideas and we're not leaving until we have 50 down on the board. And they're like, what, 50, what? I'm like, yeah, you better come up with some crazy ideas. But the cool thing was then it became, we just have to throw ideas out there and they may be crazy, they may be wild, but they may be the next Uber. <laughs> Let's make an app where you can get into a stranger's car. Like who thought of that? <laughs> right, exactly. I love yeah. that. I love so, that. I wish I thought of that. Well, and it, it becomes this fun thing because, you know, you get some wild ideas and you're like, wow, you're really creative, but it's getting us to our goal. We'll deal with knocking them out later. Exactly. But to put people in that position and, and to be comfortable being vulnerable and throwing out those ideas and trusting that they're not going to get judged or they're not going to get fired or whatever requires a level of, of trust within the team. What have you done or thought of to do when you come into a leadership position following a leader who didn't have integrity and there isn't trust built on that team? Because I know a lot of people end up in that position too. Yeah, uh, no question about it. I think, first of all, it's a process. Let me back up a step. Presumably, if if you are in the company that you you, you get a promotion and you've been in that company. Presumably, you have a reputation in that company. Hopefully. <laughs> right, right. I know, hopefully and it's a good one. Hopefully it's a good one, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and if it isn't, well, then maybe it's not going to work. But um, 
so if you're in that company, presumably you have a reputation, people know you, maybe not as many people as when you get promoted, your sphere of influence gets bigger. Um, but number one, word will spread. People will talk about you. Oh, uh, Susan's a great person. She's trustworthy. You can believe her. She stands by her people, blah, 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 blah. So that's number one. But number two, I really think you have to create that atmosphere where people are essentially rewarded to question you, um, to speak up. That doesn't mean to be rude, and you should never be rude, but um, uh, I had to get people to trust me. I was the general counsel before I was promoted to the CEO. Talk about starting, stepping into a role where people are like, don't trust that one. <laughs> exactly right. I was a lawyer. Who's going to trust the lawyer? And uh, I remember my first town hall meeting. We were making a lot of changes and many of the changes weren't popular. Um, and in the town hall meeting, there was a very brave woman, young woman, who really questioned whether we were moving in the right direction. And she asked a very pointed question in front of hundreds of people. And uh, I did my best to answer it as, as best I could, as honestly as I could. But after the meeting was over, um, I called her to my office and I presented her with a handwritten note thanking her for challenging me. And um, little things like, and I, I don't know if she, I'm sure she told people um, you know, and share the note and things like that. And that word gets around. We had, um, we had another meeting. I talk about this in my book. Um, we, were, we were discussing a really important strategic decision. This was, this was a big deal. And there were about uh, 12 or 14 people in the room, in the room at the time. And it, it came time to make a decision. We've been discussing this for a while and blah, blah, blah. We had them, you know, Fisher cut bait. And what I did was I turned to the junior most person in the room and said, what do you think? Not the scene, not me and not that person's boss, but that person, not to put them on the spot, but to get their honest opinion of what they thought. And we went around the room in reverse order of seniority so that the junior people couldn't be influenced by the more senior people. Uh, and when the time came, I had listened to everyone and finally made the decision. But things like that in welcoming their ideas, appreciating their ideas, I think it matters. Well, and that goes back to your first point of listening first. You know, and and saying, hey, what do you what do you all think? Your perspectives are very valuable here, and research is showing that a diversity of opinion and education and perspective create better outcomes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I love I love listening to your stories, and I want to I want to turn this to your book. We've mentioned it a few times: driving results, six lessons learned from transforming an iconic company. What what intrigued me the most when you and I met was your positioning of Bridgestone. And when I say that, what struck me is like, you were like, oh, we were this also ran company is sort of, and, and I'm paraphrasing my impression, you know, as opposed to the leader 
market leader, which I'm assuming is is the one that's not really a great month, right? Um, and I never perceived Bridge, and I'm not saying this because you're for. I just never. I always perceived Bridgestone as up there as one of the market leaders and top company. Can you give us some insight, sort of, into what your thought process was, and then you know, as a, in your subtitle, uh, transforming an iconic company, what that transformation was, and, and sure, sure. So on Bridgestone, Bridgestone acquired Firestone. Remember the old Firestone Tire and Rubber Company? Sure. Um, it acquired Firestone in '88, um, and and Firestone was absolutely an iconic company, um, and the company. Mm, the shareholders wanted more from Bridgestone Americas, which was the company I was in charge of, uh, which was all the operations in North, South, and Central America, plus other global non-tire operations. Um, so in any event, in the United States and in many parts of South America, our market share, we were not the leader in market share, certainly in passenger tires. Um, and we were not uh, able to command the top price. And so I, I wouldn't use the term also ran, but I understand what you're saying. We weren't the leader and that's what we really strive to be. And our goal was to turn us into the true leadership position in our markets. And, and that's what the shareholders wanted and they wanted more greater returns and, and, and to improve our market share and the power of the brand, the Bridgestone and Firestone brand in our markets. So to do that, in my opinion, uh, we had to make changes. It's crazy to think you can keep doing what you've always been doing and things are gonna dramatically change. Just doesn't work that way, right? Isn't that the definition of insanity? Absolutely. Right. So uh, we had to make changes and we changed almost everything. We changed the organizational structure, the governance structure. We changed the culture and the culture's really, really hard to change. Um, we changed the people. From the time I became the CEO to the time I retired, about three fifths of the top 150 people in the organization were new to their position. That's a lot of change. It is. Um, we changed our policies. We changed our processes. Uh, we just changed. We changed the company focus, strategic changes, tactical changes, um, and so we changed everything. In the uh, number one, change is really, really hard, especially changing culture. Studies show that about two thirds of all change efforts fail to achieve their goals. Well, we not only achieved our goals, we surpassed our goals. During my six-year tenure, profits grew 500%. Wow. And, and that's in a very mature industry. It isn't like the iPhone, which is new to the world. You know, these are tires, right? They've been around for over 100 years. Uh, so that was really a big deal. Our cash flow improved some 300%. Um, just so the results were extraordinary. So what the book is about is how to be in that one third of successful change efforts. And I describe this, what I think 
are the six key elements of successfully driving change. Now there's a lot to it. There's a lot of meat that go on each of those six bones, if you will. But uh, that's, that's basically the formula. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that if you do these six things, the changes you want, you'll achieve. Now, were they the right changes? That's hopefully you made the right decisions, but you get my point. It worked. It sure worked at the time. It worked at the time. <laughs> under under those circumstances. How long did that take for, from this sort of the initiation of the change, I guess, from you starting to achieving that kind of results? Yeah. You know, so um, it's, it's, in my opinion, a never ending process. Mm. You keep improving, you keep making the changes that you think are appropriate as things change, as the business matures. Uh, so it really is a never ending process. Yeah, it's not a destination, right? Right. <laughs> All exactly. right, we're there. We've done it. Right. Success. Right. Yeah, right. And you know, when you're finished changing, you're finished. Right. Change. Yeah. You just have to keep evolving. So you just keep pushing and keep getting better. Yeah, you and you and I have certainly spoken about this. Actually, Ann and I have also spoken about this. That's that's a leader's job, is to constantly engender change. Otherwise, you don't need leadership. People just keep going. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, it's a rare, rare, rare situation where a leader should come into their position and say, "We don't need to change anything." And maybe it's because uh, the predecessor suddenly left through some tragedy. And this is a placeholder for two months. Uh, even then, I would put, I would encourage the person, what can you do in this opportunity to take things, to make things better than the way they were? But yeah, I, I, I love, I, I think if we approach everything in life, whatever it is we do, is saying, how can I just improve it a little bit? That's yeah. it, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did some rather, a rather unusual thing to change the culture. Uh, and it's, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting if you want to hear about it. Yeah, that no, was literally but, my yeah. next question. Okay. <laughs> I love, by so, the way, the open loop, you little tease us. I did this really amazing yeah, thing. Right. <laughs> you want to I hear was that? waiting for you to say, no, nah, we don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, changing, changing the culture is hard. It's really hard. People are stuck in their ways. They have their habits, right? How many people have a new year's Eve resolu resolution, new year's resolution. And, and it just falls flat, right? My wife, my wife told me, you know, she never failed to achieve every one of her new year's Eve, new year's resolutions. And the reason is she said, I don't bother to make them. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to set your goal to, to achieve your goals. <laughs> exactly. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> um, but but fundamentally, you can't just go in and say, hey, our culture needs to be better. We need to change things, right? It just doesn't work. People aren't going to rally behind that. So what I did was I said, I, I gathered the top 150 people in the organization to an offsite meeting. And I had had these discussions with the executive committee um, beforehand. And I said, we are not regarded 
as the premier brand, uh, this was way back in 2010, is the premier brand um, in, in our markets. And so we can't command the premium price, at least in the passenger tire market. We can't command the premium, the, the premier, the premium price. And tires are coming in from Asia, largely from China, and they are really low price tires and they're pulling down the prices of everything. So our margins are being squeezed, right? You get that. So we have a problem. If we're gonna achieve our goals, we've got to do things differently. And there are two options that we have, which I said to the team. One option is we can try to be a low cost producer, basically, do a better job at being a low cost producer than the Chinese are, out Chinese the Chinese. And I said, if we try and do that, no one's gonna like it. We're gonna have to make cuts like you can't even imagine and all kinds of drastic changes and it is not gonna be fun. Or we can become the premier brand in our markets. And if we're gonna do that, the only way to do it is to become the most innovative company in our industries. And then I, I answered everybody's questions. I sat down and I called up an expert on innovation. And for six hours, he discussed how innovation really occurs in the most innovative companies in the world. And when he got done, I got back up on the podium uh, and I said, I just have one question. Do you think our culture will allow us to do what this man just described? And everyone in the room said, no way. They just, we just couldn't. I said, I agree with you. So tomorrow you will come back here and with the help of moderators, facilitators, not moderators, we're going to break you into teams and you will design what our culture needs to be to become the most innovative company in our industry. And that's exactly what happened. And at the end of the next day, they presented to me and the COO, the seven elements of what our culture had to be to be the most innovative company in our industry. And it was beautiful, it was wonderful. And the facilitators did a great job and they condensed it down and I, got up and praised the team and just, I'm thrilled with what you came up with. This is now our cultural blueprint and they called it the rules of the road. Perfect. Love right? it. Yeah. And I said, so you now have the right to call me out anytime I deviate from the rules of the road, anyone, anytime, any place. If I deviate from the rules of the road, you have the right to call me out. Conversely, these are your rules and I have the right to call you out. And that's really how we began to change the culture. Wow, I love, so what I heard you say, and feel free to correct if I misperceive this, is that you adopted a new value, the value of innovation. Yes. And culture is a reflection of our values. And so then you had to reform the culture to reflect the new value. Exactly. That is exactly right. Wow. 
This is great. So, I mean, you did this for, uh, uh, you know, was it Fortune 100? I don't know, you know, a massive company. Some of our listeners, many of our listeners, most, in fact, most business owners, most people who own businesses are, are small companies, uh, under a million dollars, under 50 employees. That's 95% of the businesses out there in America. What advice do you have for them? Because I'm sure they're listening going, yeah, that's great when you have a board of directors and you have, you know, all these top ranked managers and, and, you know, directors and whatnot, but it's just me and my wife. What advice do you have for them? You know, fundamentally, it's the same thing. The principles don't change. Uh, you um, get with your team, whether it's uh, the owner and the, the spouse, the two spouses, um, it maybe they have an inner circle of two or three other people, but get with your team, figure out how do we take the company to the next level? It doesn't have to be the owner's idea. Not every idea was my idea. Um, and, and that gets back to what we said earlier about a free flowing discussion and people uh, uh, feeling comfortable um, to throw out ideas, but get with the team and come up with what, what do we need to do to take the company to the next level, the organization to the next level, the business, the results to the next level. And then you have to get people on board and then you have to figure out how are you going to sell it to the broader organization? That could be 20 people. It could be 50 people. It doesn't matter. You still got to sell. A leader is a salesperson, uh, in my opinion. Yep. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, you have to sell. When I when I came when I came into my position, and I knew we had to make a lot of changes. I had to sell to the broad organization. Mm-hmm. We have to make changes. I didn't know what all the changes were going to be from day one, but I had to sell them. Hey, fasten your seatbelt. We're going for a ride. Um, and and what we did, and this was the COO's idea. It was a brilliant idea. We held town hall meetings. And to the broader organization who isn't used to reading financial statements, you can't just throw a financial statement in front of them, in front of them and expect them to get it. Um, it just, it, they, aren't, they don't speak that language. So what we did was uh, I got up and I said, imagine this. You own an ice cream store. You, and this is your livelihood. It's just a little neighborhood ice cream store. And you have, say, $100,000 in sales after one year. What do you want to have in profits? And I just threw it out for people to throw, to answer whatever they wanted. And it didn't really matter what they said. Some, someone said $80,000, someone said $8,000, didn't matter. Because then I said, all right, on that same scale, this is how much we are making in profits. It was about $1,000 at the time. Wow. I said, that doesn't, that isn't cutting it. The shareholders want more. And we've got to find a way to give them more. And to do that, we're going to have to make changes. And I don't know what all those changes are going to be. And we're open for ideas. But things can't continue the way things are. So I'm curious, what kind of ideas did you get from your junior people? And I don't even mean your 
your line level managers, even uh, I think you and I talked about this. Anything percolate up from the floor that stands out in your mind? Well, um, as we introduce the concept of innovation, and and you can't just say, "Hey, let's be innovative today," and wipe your hands, and there you go. Right, it doesn't work that way. We created in an innovation department. We created uh, an an online innovation gateway, Bridgestone Innovation Gateway, where anyone in the company could submit ideas. Um, we did all kinds of things, uh, along with changing our performance review process to drive innovation. Um, but in any event, we held innovation contests where anyone in the company could throw out any idea they had, and uh, it went to the innovation team, and the innovation team, the department, uh, and by the way, if I can footnote that, we took some of our brightest um, younger executives to lead and create this innovation department. And how excited were they? Right? How, how ch- and they did a wonderful job. Um, but in any event, they were energized. They were doing something really new and different and important and creative. Um, but in any event, uh, one of the ideas that someone in the organization, and I can't even remember who, but it was, was not a senior or middle level, level person. They said, you know what? Changing tires is hard. It's, it's a pain in the butt. You got to take your car to a store. You got to wait. Then, or maybe they drive you somewhere and then you got to go back. So what if we went to them? You're at your house. We had a special purpose van or whatever, uh, and and it drove to their house. They ordered their tires online, or they could do it by phone if they wanted, or their place of work, or the park, or wherever they want. We go to them and change their tires, and they never have to leave home. And it was a brilliant idea, and we are doing that to this day, and people love it. People just love it. It's brilliant. And it's one of those things that it seems so simple in hindsight. Well, duh, but it had never been done, right? So you're like, well, yeah. Yeah. And it's That's amazing. And you know, and and this was, imagine a, a stay-at-home mom. She's got, let's say, two or three or four kids going to the tire store. That's a big deal. That's hard, right? For the tire store too. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. And I'm curious, how long ago did you implement that? We started that, I want to say it was in 2000, it was either 2013 or 14. Okay. Wow. And, and here's how appreciate that is, because now I'm thinking, here I am, I work from the house and you know, I, whatever it is, every 50,000 miles need to get a new set of, of rubber. What do I have to do? Now, now I have to do something different. But prior to this conversation, right, I'd have to drive to my mechanic or the tire store, which is taking time out of my day, right. drop my car off, probably get a ride back home. Four or five hours later, I got to go back, do it again, right? And I'm losing, what, an hour and a half, two hours out of my day dealing with all that stuff. Instead, you know, you took an idea that had been around in the commercial uh, business forever, right? Because trucks break down the road. They have trucks that go out and change tires all the time. 
or um, uh, Safe Flight does that with auto glass, right? And just right. rethought and said, let's let's just do this at home. And right, right and, uh, that I just. By the way, you have a, or not you anymore, but you know, Bridgestone probably has a new customer now, <laughs> just for that very reason. They've actually expanded it to do oil changes at your house and other, you know, not you can't rebuild an engine at your house. Oh, but, tell that to my neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> right. Fair enough. But um, but it's brilliant, and and as you said. And it's it was obvious, like, duh, why not? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, listen, we could probably sit here and listen to stories all day. I want to I want to um, uh, make sure our listeners know, you know, they can find these stories and many more in Driving Results, Six Lessons Learned from Transforming an Iconic Company. Where, uh, Gary, can they find this? Just about any, any retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target. Uh, all online, um, you know, anyone that sells books pretty much. All right. And then you do speaking as well, I assume, on on a culture change or what exactly is it? I do speaking on culture and change and leadership uh, and consulting and coaching. All right. And if so people want to get hold of you for one of those areas, how would they do that? Best way to do it is to email me um, at G-A-G-A-R-F. G for Gary, A for Alan, G A R F for Garf, as in Garfield, then 111 at iCloud.com. Uh, or you can go online to my website, uh, GaryAGarfield.com. All right. And I'll put those in the show notes. Do you have any closing words of wisdom you want to leave for our listeners? Um, I, first of all, to you and Anne, thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I really appreciate it. And uh, to our listeners, you know, when you're finished changing, you're finished. So <laughs> keep moving forward. Well, it's funny. I think actually even when we're finished changing and we're done, we still continue to change just into, you know, mulch. Um, so. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for accepting this invitation. Um, it's been, I, I think I can speak for Anne, but I'll let her speak for herself because she's never at a loss for words. Um, but uh, this has been a, a really fun and illuminating, and I really just appreciate your connecting with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Gary. I, I speak on change as well, on the embracing the discomfort of it and getting your team on board. So I'll uh, probably be sending some people your way. Be great. And likewise, Anne. All right, well. Thank you all, folks, and we'll see you again next week. Have a great week. That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. This is Dave Rosenberg, and you can find my website at LockedOnLeadership.com. And this is Ann Bonney at YourChangeSpeaker.com. Remember, if they fail to make a decision, you failed to disarm them.